0: I want to continue uh, talking about um, Koinonia and Reformation, uh, and I got um, I got in trouble Monday by some of our staff for not breaking down the word Koinonia long enough and not spelling it out so people could put it correctly in their notepads, and so we're going to do that first, but uh, we are going to continue talking about Koinonia and Reformation and kind of where I feel like we are we are heading um, and where the church as a whole is heading. Um, and so I, I just want us, as we get prepared to move into a new building, as um, that brings a new sense of energy and wonder and, and what life can look like, um, I want us to be prepared for that fully. So uh, the word I'm using is the word koinonia. Koinonia is spelled... K-O-I-N, like coin, but with a K, O-N-I-A, K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. It's like a coin that you would get, you know, like a dollar coin or quarter, but with a K. In Greek, if, some, if, if you think something starts with a C and you've got to spell it in Greek, just be prepared, it always starts with a K, and vice versa. It's like I before E except after C, but with C and K. They just flip-flop each other. Uh, This word koinonia is what the early church would have used, what our um, Greek and actually Aramaic translation use as the word for fellowship within the body and fellowship with Christ, okay? So Thayer's, um, uh, not, not dictionary, but Thayer's how they would break this word out is to say that koinonia means fellowship, association, community, communion, joint partnership, and even intercourse. So in the same day, you could have koinonia with your friends. You could have koinonia with the Lord. Then you could have koinonia with your wife all in one day. It sounds weird, but that's just the nature of this all-encompassing word. But it, it in a way, should enlighten us and give us a better understanding of how the early church would have viewed relationship between themselves, how they would have viewed relationship together as one body with this word koinonia. It is really how they would define themselves as a whole. If someone said, well, what makes Christianity different than this, or what makes Christianity different than that? They would say, well, our koinonia, our fellowship our Ecclesia is built on this belief that we are actually and fully a united family. And there's nothing that separates us or unbinds us, right? They were actually saw themselves stitched together just as they would with each other, as they would with the Lord. And so what I believe that we are moving into as a body is this reformation of bringing back the true nature of what the, the kingdom was supposed to look like in these individual bodies or churches. And we're getting back to reforming ourselves back to Koinonia relationship, right? Here's Koinonia used um, in scripture. This is Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, Koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Right Romans 15, 26 would say for Macedonia, And Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions, koinonia, for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. The interesting thing about koinonia when you wrap it in is that love begins to be expressed the same no matter who it's to and in what form it is. So if I give to you, it's koinonia. If I break bread with you, it's koinonia. If I spend time with you, it's koinonia. It all relates back to this singular idea of complete, whole relationship. In a way, as odd as it seems, the early church would have saw themselves almost as closely as two people connected in a marriage. Take out the other stuff but it is the reality of how they would have saw themselves. Brothers and sisters united, family, no different from one to the next. This unity is what actually made the church what it was in the beginning. It didn't matter what color you were, it didn't matter what race you were, it didn't matter what gender you were, it didn't matter, you could find a place here and find rest and recover and learn the truth about what happened, which is God became a man. And so I believe we're right now um, in this place of returning to this because you see the language not only here, um, but you see the language of family and uh, kingdom family and unity. You're starting to see this language return to pockets of family, um, not just across our country, but kind of across the, the globe itself. If you were to take the Rising church right now in iraq and iran their whole thing is based off koinonia (laughs) Because all they have is each other They don't have a building Right, they don't have two sunday services one at nine one at eleven What they have is each other they have the ability to connect with each other and that's even how they Determine when they will meet Is they send word through each other to each other through their kingdom family to gather as a whole? And so the church, it seems, all over the world, all over the globe, is returning to this idea that we're more than just a social gathering. We are more than just a structure or a uh, place that we come and do our thing and then leave. We're united greater than that. Um I'm going to do a little bit of review from last week. Uh, And I don't say this narcissistically, but I just say it to be honest. If you weren't here last week, this will all make more sense if you go listen to that because I just don't have an hour to go over what we talked about last week to get into this week. But um, we are going to spend uh, just a little bit of time looking back at at some stuff again because, once again, to understand Koinonian fellowship, as we've talked about, we have to understand our individual place in Christ. We have to be able to realize our place as co-seated. Right, we've talked about imputed righteousness, that that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, and we put our faith in Christ, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Right? This is Romans 5. It's also found in, in Hebrews 2. That Christ's righteousness is actually transferred to us, which brings us into perfect relationship with the Lord. He, the writer <clears throat> Excuse me. The writer of Hebrews takes it even further in Hebrews 2 and says Not only has Jesus transferred his righteousness to you, but to be able to be face to face with the Father, Jesus has actually transferred his holiness to you that you have become as righteous and as holy as the son. Don't mistake that idea as a place of equality, but you need to understand that is a place of seatedness. It is a place of authority that as much as the son now sits at the right hand of the father, you are co-seated with Christ in heavenly places, right? This is not, this is not something new. This is really, really old theology, but we have to understand that is our starting place because if If we try and what has seemed to have happened throughout um, at least the last couple hundred years is when people try to get to a place of and relationship with each other, without the groundedness of who you are and your co-seatedness, you will end up in so much insecurity that you will eventually leave that relationship. Right, There is such an openness required to be in full relationship with people to that level, to the same relationship that you would carry with Christ, that unless you understand who you are, if you get around a bunch of people who do understand who they are and if you don't get it, it will eventually push you to be so insecure that you will eventually leave, which is very hard but very true, right? When you look at the disciples as they begin their journey with Jesus, everything for them is about who they are, right? It says the, it says the disciples come to Jesus asking who among them is the greatest. You know, John and, uh, John, and Jacob, uh, not, uh, John and his brother's mom end up coming to Jesus and saying, can my son sit at your left hand and your right hand? Everything is about authority, who I am, what I'm doing. And these disciples kept dealing with this insecurity until eventually they realized who they individually were in Christ. And it got so pure for them that when Jesus comes back before he ascends, the the trueness of their identity becomes so real that he can actually tell Peter, you're going to die a horrible death and John won't. That's what he says, right? He says, you're going to die horribly. And if I choose for John to live forever, that's none of your business and I can't think of anything worse to sign up for. It's like, hey, you're gonna, you and this guy are going to do this together. He's going to live a full, beautiful life, write a bunch of books of the Bible. You're going to die upside down on a cross burning. What do you think? It's a hard life. But the, the understanding of who you are opens the availability to understand who you've been designed to be. And when you understand who you've been designed to be, you no longer have a concern or worry about who other people are right? You're even finding that with children in the room. I am very unconcerned about kids in the room, crying, moving around, walking, whatever it takes, because that's not what I'm here to do. That's not my responsibility. That's someone else's responsibility. I'm here in union with Christ. And so I have the fullness of belief that they can do what they need to do, and I need to do what I can do, and it doesn't distract me because it's where they are. It's their season. So I want to get talking more about this idea of Koinonia and union, which is where we're going to land tonight because we're going to stay on this topic for a little while. Um, But we talked a lot last week about understanding that what is coming, and we've used this language a bunch, is this idea of a new wineskin to the body as a whole. And with that comes the unfortunate reality for all of us in some ways that we are going to have to be okay with walking into the mystery of what the church could look like. Because it may not look like what we thought it was going to look like. The big word I used last week was the word nostalgia. I know for myself, I have grown up in the church my entire life and I love the church model. I grew up going to youth group. I grew up going to kids church. I grew up going to college and career. I grew up doing all the Sunday things. I grew up doing plays on Sundays for Christmas and wearing double pastel outfits for Easter and all the stuff in between. I've loved all of it. I have no problem you know, saying that I've loved all of it. But I also realized as we begin this journey that the unfortunate reality of the church in the West now is when someone feels led to start a kingdom family or a church. There is no seeking of the Lord on how to do the normal things. They just follow the blueprint that has always been, right? We meet at Sunday, we meet on Sunday morning. We do that for six months Then we do a building campaign. Then we get a building. Then we start a kids ministry. Then we start a youth group. Then we start small groups. Then we have small groups going. Now we have a dream team. they serve. Now we got four services. Now we're putting a campus in Hickson. Now we're putting a campus in New Orleans. Now we're putting a campus in Charlotte. Now we're putting a campus over here, right? And we follow this. It's not a bad thing, but we follow this model over and over and over and over and over again without the concept or the idea to say, okay, Yahweh, what have you designed this to look like? And what if it looks different? Are we okay moving past our own nostalgia? The statement I made last week was the fear of nostalgia is is it kept an entire generation of Israelites from seeing the, the face of the Messiah because they were so obsessed with the shadow of a God that Moses saw. Their nostalgia was so strong and they cared so much about this shadow interpretation of what Moses saw that when Jesus was standing face to face to them, they said, "Nah, we're okay. We like what we've been doing. We like what we've had. We think we're doing great. I don't know if many of you have watched um, The Chosen, but in this last season, Jesus goes to his hometown and it's that moment when he's reading the scroll and he shares, you know, that I've come to uh, set the captives free and and, and all these things and, and to bring liberty and justice and to save the nation of Israel. And the leading Pharisee says, we don't need to be saved. We're God's people, right? The reality is for them is we don't need you. We don't need this thing. What their hope and idea was, was we just want Rome's government off of our back. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, you're so obsessed with what has been, you refuse to see what's coming. You refuse to see what is. My my greatest fear and what I have noticed in, I feel like myself, the church as a whole is, is we are extremely happy with the way things are going, but we have no fear that the results aren't equaling us looking more like Jesus. I'm astonished sometimes, even in myself, I'm not speaking just to you, you guys are perfect. I'm speaking to me and maybe to Barrett, but that's it, just me and Barrett. The rest of you guys are awesome. But I'm astonished when I can read scripture, see how the men and women of the New Testament are, And look at that and go, well, I'm not that, and then just move on with my life. Because I have busy things going on. I have a marriage. I have a mortgage. I have a baby coming. I have this. I have that. And I read Scripture over and over again, and I see these Scriptures talking about who I can be, talking about what I can have, talking about what is accessible to me. And at the end of the day, predominantly, I just go, well, that would be cool. Move on. And the church is okay with that. The church is okay with the results that we've had because at the end of the day, there have been good results. No one's given to the needy more than the church ever has. No one's taking care, well, maybe not now, but at least up until the 90s, no one took care of the homeless the way the church had. The church has done good things. But the reality is what eventually happened is we got so warped by what we were doing that one day we got so numb to who we were and it wasn't Jesus. We see it all the time. I talked about it from my own perspective of nostalgia. When we began the the transition uh, from moving from a youth group into student communities, that was a very hard thing for me. I came from an extremely fun, at the time I thought successful youth group. I had the best time in my entire life. It was about 130 of us, 128, it was awesome. We did tons of amazing things and I would have loved for my son to experience that. The hard thing is now that I'm almost 30, I look back and as far as I know, only six of us are serving the Lord. And as much as I love nostalgia, what I am beginning to realize is, is that no one's actually looked like Jesus. Everyone has great stories. Everyone has great stories of revival. Everyone has great stories of falling out in the spirit. Everyone has great stories of six and seven services a week. I can't tell you the amount of people that I have met that have been a part of or spent a significant time at Brownsville Revival, and the only thing they can talk about is what was, not what is. There's this almost bitterness and anger of losing what they had. And the reality, the shocking thing about it is what they don't understand is the incredible experiences of that moment never actually transformed them into looking like Jesus. And that's why I believe the revival that is coming, as I said last week, is going to look drastically different than the one that is, is coming now. The, the, the move of God, the revival that is coming will not be seen on a national scale with one hub. Rather, it will be empowered kingdom families operating in their city and region and people actually looking like Jesus. It won't bring fame to a leader. It won't bring, it won't bring, it won't bring fame to one church name. Rather, it will be individuals empowered to be who they are. And so people will not actually have to travel to go find it because eventually there will be kingdom men and women who do it exactly where they are. And the hard part is, 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 and this is the devastating piece of it, is it's going to take time for it to build because predominantly people won't want to be a part of it because it won't bring the notoriety they're hoping for. And most leaders won't want to lead it because it won't bring the financial success that they're hoping for. People are going to have to find a way to become independently wealthy. Maybe they could tune in to being with the Lord and do it that way. And so I, I once again, I find myself in this shocking place in my own soul often of, and I it, things are changing, but I still look at scripture and I find myself often still lacking some of the, wholeness some of the fullness some of the power that I see in the apostles of the new testament and yet I seem to go on day by day living my life out the exact same way which basically means at the end of the day you can sugarcoat it which basically means I just don't care I just don't care that someone else looks like Jesus and I don't I don't care I can, I can make it pseudo-spiritual, I can add a bunch of terms like busyness to it, but at the end of the day, the reality becomes is that we have put values over presence, we have put values over looking like Jesus. The hard thing I talked about last week when you talk about things like this is, the fear is that what people will do in their response to get to this place is move into works but the fullness of looking like Jesus is not found in what you can do. It's found in spiritual rest, which is just doing exactly what Yahweh's told you to do. Nothing less, nothing more. And our fear is oftentimes what this means for us is we want to strap up our our boots and get to work on something. But what Yahweh wants to do is just sit with you in, in the quiet. I think we've become accustomed to being okay with not caring about our own transformation into Jesus because we still at the end of the day, as my dad would have coined it, love our not yet theology. We love our ability to rest on the laurels of, I may not look like Jesus now, but when Jesus comes, I will, so who cares? It's a a tiny little thing that plays in the back of our head. Well, I know I'm not over this yet. But Jesus is going to come, and I'll be over it. Jesus is going to come, and I'll do this. Me and my dad were in Calhoun this week. Um, We were seeing some uh, people. We used to be in relationship with my dad, pastored there, and they're all getting very old now. And it's funny because I hear this statement all the time from uh, the predominant rapture generation is, I want to do this, Lord willing, or if the Lord doesn't come back. Well, me and me and my husband are going here if the Lord doesn't come back. Me and my husband are going to redo our kitchen next year if the Lord doesn't come back. Right, everything is a caveat. Everything is we're going to fix our marriage next year if the Lord doesn't come back. So we're praying he comes back so we don't have to put the work in. <laughs> Cuz I could just look like Jesus and not have to be married to him anymore. No husbands and wives, right? On new earth. And so we, we constantly, whether it's in a tiny way or a big way, we constantly stumble in these, these precepts we live in of, I don't have to truly worry about it. Because at the end of the day, it's going to happen for me anyway. And it's, it's, it's out of this idea somehow we have that the, the goal has often been to accept him, and then wait for him. We accept Christ, and then we wait for Christ. That's been the two-step program we've often all grown up with. And Some of this sounds repetitive, but it's because we all still need to hear it. And we're going to just continue, and I just want to continue to chip away in our brains that the gospel Nowhere in it has ever taught us to be patient bystanders waiting for Yahweh to crash through the sky and bring a cosmic reset. That's never been the hope or the purpose for any of us. Actually, the story of the Gospels is a calling to us to return to our original intent, which is co laborers in finishing the project that He started in Genesis. Don't mistake yourself that Adam could screw up bad enough that Jesus would have to erase the whole thing. Jesus doesn't have to erase the whole thing. Jesus actually gets to become the second Adam and pick us right back up where we left off, which is bringing us into the place of co-laborers to bring the kingdom to this world. And it's going to happen. Because as the book of Revelations would show us, someone points out and says, look, the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord. And there's no fire and brimstone in that. And I think oftentimes, I wanna make sure I say this right. I think oftentimes we fall back into this place of Co-laboring with Christ often looks like what we would define as only holy or churchy things. If I co-labor with Christ, that means that when I get home from work, I spend the rest of my night in my prayer closet. Right? Me and Joyce Myers in there praying against the spirit of Jezebel over the city of Chattanooga. That's what my night looks like, right? We think that if I'm gonna co-labor with Christ, it means no more birthdays because I can't be celebrated. That's not spiritual enough. If That means I co-labor with Christ. It means that in some weird perverted way, what we've taken in in co-laboring with Christ is I I give up everything that life is to only do the, the pseudo spiritual things. I posted this on, on Instagram the other day. But it, the reality of co-laboring with Christ is to realize that everything you do is made holy when done in union with Christ. Everything you do. Putting your kids to bed at night is holy when done in union with Christ. Working in your job is holy when you do it in union with Christ. Cultivating your family, Raising your kids making your own food for half of you in here now making your own bread and having your own bread business Because half of be love is just a bread business now I don't know if you knew that or not, but 60% of our people own their own bread business Uh, So we're we're free on bread for the rest. If the apocalypse comes We're good on bread But all these things at the end of the day are co-labors with Christ when done in union with him. And the call of Christ was not to cultivate the kingdom by just having really good services and having really good Bible studies and meeting four to five or six nights a week. It was actually cultivating families, marriages, homes, and businesses that resemble holiness and the kingdom. This is the co-laboring that we are actually called to. And when we realize this, we we can somehow, if we can just get our brain close enough to being wrapped around it, we can move ourselves out of this not yet theology because co-laboring now doesn't sound so bad. When I realize that co-laboring with Christ is being a good husband, it doesn't actually sound so bad. When I realize that co laboring with Christ is me and Him together alone, discovering the secrets of my own heart of things that I would enjoy to do entrepreneurship, activities, hobbies. When I discover that this is co laboring with Christ, I realize that it's not that hard of a thing to do. It's not that big of a responsibility to reflect who He is. Jesus showed us. Consistently, what it meant to cultivate the kingdom through miracles, through signs and wonders. But Jesus also taught us how to cultivate the kingdom and what that could look like through having friends, through enjoying friendships, through sharing meals with people, enjoying his mother. For 29 years, having a vocation, building things, probably playing some type of Sport. I don't know what they'd played back then. Fiddle ball or some type of Jewish game. I don't know. Spinning dreidels. <laughs> but Jesus not only cultivated this kingdom lifestyle by miracles and signs and wonders, and he did do that. But the reality is he cultivated a kingdom lifestyle by actually living. He traveled, he had friends. He shared meals. He shared intimate secrets about himself. He was vulnerable to other people. He actually lived a genuine life. Jesus' life was not show up, do a miracle, and disappear again. So someone said "Betelgeuse" three times. That was funny. I don't care what you say. Thank you. But we've been called into this place of koinonia with Christ. And oftentimes, see, Rhett thought it was funny. We oftentimes think this, this koinonian relationship with Christ is going to require somehow this death to myself. And it does require death to myself, but not in the sense of the things I find joy in rather the death of myself and who I define myself as and finding true joy in union with him and then living out those things. One of the things I love so much and I I admire um, about Crystal Christian, she loves being talked about from the stage. One of the things I love is is she's never really carried a desire or a hope that eventually what she would do is work here full time. She's never saw her gift as a prophet and thought to herself, I just can't wait till I get paid to prophesy. I just want to be paid a bunch of money just to be shooting out words every hour. Bing, 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 bing. And so she's not cultivating this lifestyle, hoping one day it it turns into some financial game. Instead, what she's doing is she's cultivating a family. She has vocation. She's building a home. She's raising children. She has a marriage. And she's a prophet. And in her eyes, all those things remain as holy as the other thing. And they don't require some path to become something more. That's a hard place to be. Because oftentimes the other things don't seem as holy. But it's what we've been designed to do. It's who we've been designed to be is to co-labor with him and become an image-bearer of what life can actually look like. What life can actually be in union with Christ? it is a very different story. It is a very different story than our not yet theology because our not yet theology oftentimes contains this idea that the hope and the purpose will be that one day I get to dwell with God. That's what I was taught as a kid is if you act good enough, one day you'll get to dwell with God. And the message of the gospels is radically different than that. The message of the Gospels is, is that actually God set a plan in place to once again dwell with his people. Jesus came not to show us an escape plan. Jesus came to show us that the, the, the plan and purpose of Genesis is back on track. And now Christ doesn't come in the cool of the day. Christ dwells within us permanently. We've become a holy tabernacle. John 14 says it like this. I'm gonna use some scripture so you guys think I'm not lying. John fourteen eighteen through 20 says this. I promise that I will never leave you help, helpless or abandon you as orphans. I will come back to you. Soon I will leave this world and they will see me no longer, but you will see me because I will live again and you will come alive too. Jesus did live again three days later, by the way. So when that day comes, you will know that I am living in the Father and that you are one with me, for I will be living inside of you. This was the shocking revelation of what Jesus came to say. This is radically different than what Israel in any way was expecting. That no longer there was going to be required a middleman, a priest between God and me. Instead, what there would be is a people group who would become king-priests, like Melchizedek himself. And Yahweh, the creator of the cosmos, would actually dwell internally in them. And through them, wherever they went, the tabernacle of God would be. That is radically different. It is radically different. And this is what I believe, this is the colonization and pilgrimage that we've been called to. Like I said last week, I believe we're called to colonize something new. When I use the term colonize, please don't think of like going to another nation, killing all their people, and taking all their land. I don't mean that kind of colonization. But what I do mean is that we're called to colonize the kingdom where we are. We are called to a pilgrimage to bring something different than that has been. And not only are we called to do that with Christ dwelling inside of us, but if we look at the overarching narrative of Scripture as a whole, we actually see signposts that this has been God's plan all along through these almost prophetic examples of it. God calls the nation of Israel out of Egypt, not to escape off the planet, but to go to a new place and show what a city of God can look like. And in the midst of it, he builds a tabernacle where he can dwell. This is the first example. But God once again dwells in a place. Israel gets seized again by Babylon and then by Greece. And once again, we see this prophetic signpost of the overall plan that has always been in place. Because Israel returns back to their nation to once again show the world what God's people and their nation will look like. But when they rebuild their second temple, God doesn't show up. And so Jesus comes on the scene and they're waiting for this example, this idea of how are we gonna bring the fire back? How are we going to create Israel again as a nation? And Jesus says, I've come to do a new thing. And there will be no Jew or Gentile. Rather, there will just be my people. And I'm not going back to Moses' covenant, I'm going further and I'm going back to Abraham's covenant. I'm going back to the original covenant that I made, that Abraham's people would number the stars, that his children would be as vast as as the sand on the shores. And as Paul would, would write that we are all, in a way, Abraham's children, and just as Abraham's faith in God got counted to him as righteousness, now your faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to you. This is the place you've been designed to be in Koinonian reformation, to create Koinonian relationship within, with, and with, with and within Christ. You are not, <clears throat> excuse me. This is the reason why we have transitioned from the titles of servant to sons and daughters. This is what Jesus says or this is what, sorry, this is what Paul says. Paul says now, I believe it's in Ephesians, Paul says, now he is unashamed to call you his brothers and his sisters. And he comes boldly to the father to proclaim who you are to the father. You're a son and daughter because you are now the image bearer. You are the representative to the area, to the region. Your union with Christ Your Koinonian relationship, your ability to share in the intimacy of full openness with him creates a blueprint for your city, for your region, for where you are to see who you've been designed to be. Koinonian relationship has little to do with how to have good church, how to have good prayer services, how to have good moments in a service, how to do worship. Coinedinean relationship is the answer that people are longing for and crying out in the earth, which is how do I live life? People are in a state currently of dealing with mass depression, anxiety, fear. And it's tied to this concept of, I don't actually really know how to do this life thing. I can't manage my emotions. I can't manage my feelings. I can't manage my relationships. I don't understand my parents. I don't understand my friends. I'm having a hard time in my own marriage. I'm having a hard time processing how to think. I'm having a hard time processing how to feel. I'm having a hard time in my vocation. And what people don't need is encouragement in a one hour service on a Sunday. What they need is to understand how to live their life. They need to understand how Christ would have woken up and been you today. That's not going to come by me screaming behind a B3 organ. Amen. Kaya gets it, she knows. Rather, it's going to come by you in your place of work, in your family, in your area of influence, being so tightly niched to Christ that you begin to live the life that you were purposed for and people begin to cling to that. That is what comes out of true koinony relationship with the Lord. True union with Christ is that you become the blueprint how to live. People are struggling and staggering in ways on how to live. And the world is constantly changing what it means to live and how to live. And men and women are becoming more and more purposeless. At the end of the day, predominantly most people now are are finding ways and tools and paying for things simply just not to think and simply not to think about how they're purposeless. And the world, I believe, is in this place right now of needing revival from the place of people need to be revived. People need to be revived to their emotions again. People need to be revived to what purpose means again for a man, for a woman, for whoever you are. People need once again to be revived on what it means to be alive, what it means to raise a child, what it means to own things, what it means to cultivate a family. And oftentimes we are So exhausted from the thought of co-laboring with Christ because what we oftentimes think it means is carving out more time away from me and more time doing things I don't desire to do. And co-laboring with Christ is simply doing what you're already doing in union with him. Discovering things maybe you haven't seen in union with him. the hard part about that is is unfortunately we're so caught up in so many different areas of life we have no single focus and coinanean relationship with the lord requires one single focus and one single value which is presence i'll break down i feel like we use that word so vastly it can lose its meaning presence meaning the the one desire to know where the Father is, who the Father is, to commune with the Father, and to know what the Father feels about you and what you feel about Him. That's what presence means, to break it down. It takes one f- single focus, one single, va- one single value in letting everything fall behind this idea of I'm simply seeking after Him. Let's look at some scripture on it. This is Matthew 6. And I'm actually going to read this in the English Standard Version because I'm super holy like that. Matthew six nineteen, Jesus says this. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Let's start at the beginning. We're aware of this concept, and we've, we've, we've broken this down before, so hopefully, hopefully everybody remembers. But we are widely aware that when Jesus talks about laying up treasures in heaven, he's very little talking about some type of ruby or jewel that you're going to have in some type of mansion on another planet one day. Or some big fat... Uh, diamond you're going to have at the top of your crown, right? Rather, what we understand is that heavenly treasure is actually, and this is actually, this word, I, I, won't, I won't say that I stole this one. This is from Dr. Simmons' commentary in the Passion Translation. He says that heavenly treasures represent eternal realities, to lay up heavenly treasures for yourself is to focus on eternal realities, to focus on the values and the things of the eternal life, which is the kingdom. Paul later breaks down in, in Colossians that not only are we to lay up heavenly treasures and realities for ourselves, but they are, we're not waiting for some type of post mortem to get them, they're accessible now. Colossians 1, 3 through 5 says this. Every time we pray for you, our hearts overflow with thanksgiving to Father God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your devoted lives of faith in Christ Jesus and your tender love towards all his holy believers. Your faith and love rise within you as you access all the treasures of your inheritance stored up in the heavenly realm. For the revelation of the true gospel is as real today as the day you first heard of our glorious hope. Now that you have believed in the truth of the gospel. The more you believe the truth of the gospel, which is that Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to return you to original intent. The more you begin to access your heavenly treasures, which is simply eternal realities eternal focuses. If I were to try to break that down in my own opinion for myself, I would say that focusing on earthly treasures is simply seeing value in the things that I can touch. My home, my investments, my cars, my things. But Jesus describes these eternal realities, these eternal treasures as things like My family, my spouse, my relationships, my ability to heal the sick, my ability to let blind people see again, my ability to allow the deaf to hear, my ability to access the prophetic my ability to be a blueprint to those around me in my region. These are these these heavenly treasures, these eternal realities in which we are called to live in. And as we further ourselves in our belief in the gospel, as Colossians would say, we begin to gain more and more access to those exact things. And what they do is they begin to produce in us an understanding of what value is so that we can pursue true value. As they rise up within us, Jesus shares this idea of, okay, so if I'm focused, if I'm supposed to focus on heaven, heavenly realities, if I'm, spoke, if I'm supposed to focus on the treasures of heaven, how do I do this? Which I always feel like I'm talking to pirates because I keep saying treasure so much. How do I access this in my life? Back to Matthew six. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is how he elaborates and takes this idea of how do we transition from earthly treasure focus, kingdom treasure focus. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? the reality of this is that if I'm going to focus on the light, my eyes have to be singularly focused on one thing. The access of eternal realities is focused when my eye is singly focused on light, which is Christ. The Amplified Bible breaks down Matthew six twenty two like this. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, Or spiritually perceptive, your whole body will be full of light. And then it says this in abbreviations benefiting from God's precepts. Precepts, broken down by Webster's dictionary, is defined as a general rule to regulate behavior or thought. So I'll read it again The eye of the lamp, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is clear, spiritually perceptive, your whole body will be full of light or benefiting from God's precepts, which means you will begin to understand how to regulate your behavior and you will begin to understand how to regulate your thought. Your thought and your actions are what make up the man. And so what Christ is saying is in this, in this almost parable is that the eye single focused on presence is able to perceive the ability to regulate who you are as a person. And through the regulation of who you are as a person, whether that be behavior, thought, whatever you want to relate it to with regarding inside of, of personhood, it will find its truest form in your ability to be single, focused on presence. Does that make sense? Okay. I wrote it like this, our ability to regulate ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our health, our relationships, our mind, our finances, are found by having the eye single focused on one thing and that one thing is the Christ. Everything becomes illuminated when we focus on Christ. This type of focus, this type of the ability to have our eyes completely gazed upon light requires the ability to understand that we are called to koinonia union with Christ, full openness with him, full blank openness with him. It is a different type of union. I love this. And John breaks this down in 1 John 1, 5 through 7. And he almost elaborates on the scripture from Matthew, it feels like. And he says this. This is the life-giving message we heard him share, and it's still ringing in our ears, talking about Jesus. We now repeat his words to you. God is pure Light you will never find even a trace of darkness in him. And if we claim that we share life with him, but keep walking in the realm of darkness, we're fooling ourselves and not living the truth. But if we keep living in the pure light that surrounds him, we share unbroken fellowship, koinonia, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all of our sin, Jesus says in Matthew, that the eye focused single, the eye singly focused on light is filled with it. John comes on later on, closer to the end of his life and says, there's one thing we learned about the Christ, is he is light and in him is no darkness. And our fellowship with him actually brings us into the fullness of it. It brings us into the fullness of what he's designed us for. I love the way that Francois Dutrois translates this, and we're not going to be too much longer, just another hour, and then we'll get out of here. But uh, this is what Francois Dutroit says in 1 John chapter 1. This is how he translates this. He says, My conversation with you flows from, this is John writing this. My conversation with you flows from the same source which illuminates this fellowship of union with the Father and the Son. This then is the essence of the message. God is radiant light and in him there exists not even a trace of obscurity or darkness at all. This is the real deal the to live a life of pretense is such a waste of time The truth has no competition Truth inspires the poetry of friendship in total contrast to a fake performance-based relationship Light is not threatened by darkness Why say something with darkness as your reference? We invite you to explore the dimensions of the same light that engulfs God. When we see the light in his light, fellowship ignites. In this light, we understand how the blood of Jesus is the removal of every distortion and stain of sin. In Christ's light, we find that every distortion of who you think you were designed to be, every distortion of what you think you're called to, ends when you move into the fullness of light. Because light not only illuminates what needs to change in you, but light in a greater way illuminates the actual true passions and desires that live inside of you. This is what God is trying to call out of you. Light illuminates the desires and intended purpose of your personhood. Your union with Christ not only brings you into the fullness of understanding your holiness as far as no longer sinning, but the light of Christ actually brings you to full union with him in the sense of discovering your purposes, your loves, and your true desires here. I am a... uh, my wife will tell you, I'm a bit of a, of a hobby junkie. My wife feels like she has no hobbies, and I feel like I have a thousand hobbies. And my hobbies can get exhausting because I'm always doing something. But I find myself, the closer I get to Christ, kind of shedding away different things and becoming more single-focused on a few things. And I find this is happening because in my union with him, he is beginning to illuminate the things that actually attract my heart the most. I'm finding my place in Christ. We talk very little about the things I'm not doing or the sins that I I may in my brain think I'm committing. And we talk very much about the things that I enjoy and that he enjoys doing with me. And through that, I'm actually finding more freedom than I've ever found in my life. Because when I enjoy doing with him what he's designed me to do, there really is no restlessness to do things I'm not designed to do. And your sin management will end in your own life at your ability to understand that your union with him is not to just enlighten you to holiness, but enlighten you to live. God is calling you to live, to do what you've been designed to do, to travel, to eat, to live, to have children, to start jobs, to start businesses, to raise families, all in union with him. But all those things will find, all those things within you will feel like shortcomings if they're not in union with him, because it is your union with him that reveals the trueness of how they're supposed to look. All right, stand up for me. I believe our church and the church as a whole has not is not waiting to but is actually in the process of moving into true coinian relationship because I believe there are groups of people all across the world beginning to get a really 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 great revelation of who they are and they're finding they're finding extreme intimacy with Jesus because what they are finding is that the closer they get to Yahweh, the less the conversation is about who they're not and more about who Yahweh is cultivating them to be and the more the voice of accusation leaves you, the more spending time with the Lord becomes the ultimate source of everything you can do because in that is found the genetic makeup of who you have always been designed to be since he knit you together in your mother's womb We are coming into a place as the church of no longer being strong congregations, but being strong people. And I know this sounds familiar. I know I've said things like this before, but Jesus kept coming and saying the kingdom was at hand. He only had one message, so I'm only gonna have a couple. But that is the message. Jesus says that the kingdom is here. I I am not coming to take you somewhere. I'm coming because Yahweh wants to once again, dwell amongst his people. His desire is to dwell in you and not for pseudo holy things. Once again, as I said last week, first John four says this, this is love that he loved us long before we loved him. It was his love, not ours. He proved it by sending his son to be the pleasing sacrificial offering to take away our sins. Then John says this, delightfully loved ones. If he loved us with such tremendous love then loving one another should be our way of life. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor. But if we love one another, God makes his permanent home in us and makes our permanent home in him. And his love is brought to its full expression in us. You have been called and designed for mutual indwelling. The crazy thing about this scripture is that the call that John gives us is if Christ loves us and desires in relationship with us, then my only response should be in relationship with you. And it is actually my Koinonian relationship with those around me that lead me to the full expression of what Yahweh has intended for us, which is mutual indwelling of Christ in me and me in Christ. And I once again become the tabernacle of Christ everywhere that I am. Everywhere that I go becomes the kingdom. That's who you're called to be. And you are going to need to begin to, in your own mind, reform this idea of what it means to be in union with him. Which is prayer, which is worship, which is all these things. Don't mistake it. But it is not unto something that you have to sacrifice. It is actually unto realizing your genetic makeup and being as a person. And what will happen is, is sometimes it will push you into so much uncomfortability that nostalgia will step in and say, maybe this just isn't for you. Because this isn't how it's always looked, is it? This isn't how it's always felt. And maybe Yahweh in discovering your identity is going to push you into some uncomfortable concepts and ideas. Some uncomfortable maybe things to try. Maybe he's asking you to take a leap that you're uncomfortable with and you're using nostalgia of what was to prove why that's actually not the voice of the Lord. Jesus says that no one would take an old garment and put new pieces to it. Just like nobody would pour wine into an old wineskin because the new wine would burst the wineskin. He says, but you don't have a new wineskin. He said, and the worst part is you won't even Taste the wine that I'm producing. So you're not rejecting it because you've tasted it. You're rejecting it because you won't taste it. And I think Yahweh's calling you into the fullness and giving you an invitation in the mystery to say, come find union with me and taste the wine. Taste the wine. Taste the wine of who I am. Leave all the other stuff behind. Leave all the things you feel like you have to come to me and say before we can talk. Leave all of it behind and just come and sit with me and taste what I have for you. I'm gonna call our ministry team up. And and here's what I felt for tonight is that if there is a place in you right now of unbelief of the union that you're supposed to have with Christ, come get prayer. Come get prayer. If there's a place inside of you right now that says, this sounds great, but I don't actually believe me and Christ are called to fullness in union with each other, come get prayer. Come find out that you are actually called to walk with him. Not so he can slap your hand every time you do something bad, but actually so he can do with you what he planned to do with Adam, which was cultivate the cosmos together. What a call to a people. It's not reserved for animals. It's not reserved for anything other than mankind to cultivate the cosmos together with the God who made it with his voice. Father, we thank you tonight for what you are cultivating in our house. We thank you that and Fellowship is beginning to become closer and closer, stitched more and more together. We are so excited and Just blown away at the fact that you could look at one of us and see all of us. That we are beginning to find our union in you and find our union with each other. Let us become not the blueprint of good church, but let us become the blueprint of good men, good women. Let us become the blueprint of good husbands and good wives. Let us become the blueprint of healthy sons and healthy daughters and healthy parents and healthy business owners. Haba, help us to understand that we are called to be your image bearer to resemble you to those around us. Let us help the broken, not by our words, but by our presence and our being. We worship you in Jesus' name we pray.